This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. Today we welcome Doug Gillard. Doug is an American guitarist and songwriter who originally hails from Northern Ohio, now based in New York City. He's been a member of major indie pop and punk bands over the years, most notably Guided by Voices from 97 to 2004 and 2016 to present, helping lead the powerhouse indie rock gods fronted by the incomparable Bob Pollard to new heights, plus also a member of Not A Serve. And in the past, other great bands, including Bambi Kino, which maybe you're still in that one. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Death of Samantha. I thought so. And Cobra Verde, and also recorded with the likes of Nico Case, The Hold Steady, and others. Gillard is also a super huge Beatles fan, which really, really matters on this podcast. He also has a great catalog of solo music, all of which can be found at his Bandcamp site, DougGillard.Bandcamp.com. Without further ado, we're going to jump right into this, and I forgot to welcome the co-host this time. Sorry, guys. Come on, Andy. Please welcome (laughs) Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How you doing, man? Good. And Hugh Syme, how's it going, Hugh? It's going well. Thanks, Andy. Good, good. All right, let's go. Let's let's talk to Doug. Let's go here. Hey, Doug, it's great to get to talk to you today, man. I, I dove into some of your stuff, and I, I want to start with talking about your uh, 2014 record, uh, Parade On. The first thing that I noticed as I, I went through the whole record was uh, very interesting melodies against the core progressions and the voicings that you're using on your guitar. And also specifically the layering of your guitars, the way, the way you do that, you know, to create, you know, when the chorus comes in, all of a sudden you got this big, and then you, it's just very well organized. Um, and what I'd like to do is I'm just going to go through and, and just talk about some of these songs and, and encourage listeners. If you haven't heard this record, go get it. It's really great. Parade on Doug Gillard. So before we were actually uh, recording, we were talking about uh, Ready for Death, which is a very cool song. Um, it's got in when I mention these other artists, I'm not saying that uh, I'm not comparing or I'm just saying that to me, there sounds like there could have been some influence there. I think we're all influenced by guys that come before us. And what intrigued me about your record was I heard stuff, the same stuff that I love that kind of goes in my music, too. But I'm hearing some George Harrison in there, maybe Todd Rundgren, big star influence possibly. But just it, it speaks to me great. The whole record speaks to me. Um, your eyes, the that picking that you're doing is flawless, by the way. That's pretty fantastic. It's not easy to do. Guitar players, check that out. Thanks. That song, um, I think I, I came up with the basic chords first, but then over over those root notes for the one part i uh i got it in my head to do something like um our love was that's on the who oh sure and that's where the picky picky arpeggi part comes from I okay guess. what i'd like to know is where, where the very subtle english accent comes from when you're singing um I don't know. Is there one in there? It's probably true. I don't mean it as an affectation. I mean, it really... Oh, it is affected, I'm sure. (laughs) But it sells the song, and that's probably what made me feel that kind of British invasion, kind of that constrained economy that you have with writing great pop structure, you know, and I I really enjoyed that. I listened to the whole uh, parade on today, as well as Dean, and... I guess I just don't like over-enunciation in rock. I know what you mean. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, when, when R's are too hard, um, it's just, for me personally, it's just not a... 
Yeah, I was hearing it as kind of birdsy, birdsy sounding vocals on that song. It reminded me of a little bit of, you know, maybe uh, Don't Fear the Reaper-ish where, where they were doing the birds kind of voice is kind of what that reminded me of. Oh, that could be, us. I guess. Yeah. I mean, again, it's all, you know, it's all relative. We all kind of take that stuff in and throw it in a big vat and spew yeah, it out. You don't even you know? realize it, it, you're, you're calling from something deep in your reservoir there it's it's unwitting muscle memory is what sometimes happens i mean i yeah. even had people say yeah you just wrote a beatles song and not only was it reminiscent of a beatles song i actually stumbled into chords that i i didn't plan to to uh oh to, yeah to, to incorporate um is, was it upper hand that had the kind of the real kind of frenetic it uh, was it 12 string or whatever it felt it felt like eight miles high a little bit at the end of upper hand it had a great a great feel um, to it. Oh yeah. There's a little ascending sort of thing That's, there. Yeah. I thought it sounded like something off forever changes by love. Oh, well that's nice. Yeah. Right. I mean, I really did. That's the first thing that I thought of the one that really reminded me of the who was come out and show me. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, because you got the bass note that's just pivoting and then you're doing those chords on top, like, you know, rough boys or, I don't know, uh, something off yeah. Blanfini or something. I've got a question, Doug. So, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, Guided by Voices and the, and, and the bands you played in or play in. But from a solo perspective, when you're working on your solo work, you know, how do you approach that versus, you know, being a part of the band? Because, you know, so many people, obviously, they're in a band and they don't do the solo stuff so much. But you do. It seems like you're always working. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about your approach? Well, solo things, I just sort of let things accumulate until it's time to do a record. And uh, it's been quite a while since the last, since Parade On, really. To me, it's still the most recent album, but it's kind of been too long. Right. Um, so uh, I kind of start at home mostly with the solo stuff, but I'll do a lot of sketches on GarageBand. And a lot of times those tracks will make it into the album. You get a vibe sometimes on a demo that you you can chase and chase when you try to redo it and never oh, get man. it again. You Tell know, me about know that. Yeah, demoitis, demoitis. Yeah, get it all the time. Demos today are so much more um, ready for prime time than they ever used to be. You know, we're a long way from from a, a cassette player or a reel to reel in the basement. You know, that is so true. In question, and I love hearing old demos that were on tape. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I listen to a lot of Beatles podcasts, as you guys might too, and have collected over the years. Well, there's YouTube. Um, you've heard all the demos, a lot of the demos that they used to do at home on, the, you know, Revox and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the White Album stuff, especially. Towns and Scoop, all that stuff. Yep. Um, love hearing old tape demos. or And then in the 80s and 90s, it was cassettes. And those are even more lo-fi, and those are always great. Yeah, the Townsend demos... It's kind of amazing to to listen to those when, you know, he pretty much could have just played all those records by himself. I'm glad he didn't. But those yeah. those songs were pretty complete when he take them into the who for sure. Yeah. Pretty astonishing, actually. Great versions. So, so you don't have a backlog of uh, songs just aching to make its way onto an album? Not really. I have a lot of musical ideas um, in the old voice memo bank. How do you decide what to keep for yourself and what to maybe give to a band or, you know what I mean? How do you, how do you kind of divide that up? I guess. Well, I keep, I keep mostly for myself. There's um, with, with guided by voices. Um, we only write individually as members when, when it's, when it's, it, you know, we're asked to, um, right. Well, we'll do B sides of 45s every now and then. Um, there was an album, a few albums back August by cake where every member, wrote two songs and for the record, but right. um, actually I'm working on a project with death is Samantha, my old band from the eighties. Okay. Um, so we're, cool. we're starting to record again. So I'm writing a couple things for them, but otherwise most, mostly everything I do is for solo, you know? Okay, cool. And the rest is, is uh, our instrumental parts um, for the bands. If I can ask you, I mean, I, I wasn't aware until I kind of dove into your, your history that you're not just a guitarist, but you're a singer, a guitarist, bassist, keyboardist, drummer, and percussionist. Man, I applaud your, your versatility. 
Can you tell us how you got interested in music in the first place and got started playing, uh, progressing up to uh, playing in your first band? Well, um, I mean, currently I'm not much of a drummer. I, I can I can get something done for a recording, you know. But um, as far as playing a live set with a band, I have a, I have a lazy uh, right leg. I think as far as as far as uh, kick drum uh, precision goes, but um, well, it's one of those things where if you you know if you don't use it, you lose it for sure. I used I used to have a drum kit in my in my uh, bedroom in high school, but um, I don't live with the drum kit right now at all. So gotcha. I started playing as a little kid, um, just banging on oatmeal containers and Hills Brothers coffee cans, and that's that's a pretty common story I'm finding. I think a lot of kids hauled out the pots and pans as a oh, kid. Yeah. I thought the thick phone book had a nice kind of tea towel on snare sound. <laughs> One time I did um, for like a sixth grade, was a sixth grade reading class. They had a talent show in the class. And so I, we had a couple of recorders at the, at the house, um, this little reel to reel. And a, I don't know if it was a cassette or eight track that I had. And I learned how to bounce um, overdub. So I did a back backing for, the then popular calling Dr. Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. I didn't really sing right. to it. I just played the backing track in class and I just played leads over it or played the melody on guitar. I didn't win either. Someone else won. Anyway, I'm digressing from the, the early childhood. No, I would just uh, get out the records and play to records or watch TV and just bang on stuff. There was a toy guitar around that eventually I really gravitated towards more. But drums came first. Yeah, um, my dad played guitar, and he, he he kept the guitar in a closet and would bring it out once or twice a year. Just played it for hobby his whole life. He had a 55. They, he said it was a Gibson at the time, but I think it was a K-Old Craftsman Thin Twin. It was the kind that you see Jerry Reed and Huber Sumlin have. They have the, the oh. blonde, the Tiger Stripe pickguard. Mm-hmm. I, uh, he sold it. He traded it in for my first guitar that they got me, which was an SG back in 74 and he didn't know that he was trading in something really cool and i was wasn't aware enough to stop him you know what i mean right um they said we got to get something thinner for for dougie uh this one's too big and um so the guys at the that music store probably were wringing their hands like <laughs> so was that was that change. in uh what was it akron ohio or is that where you grew Hilaria. up or? Okay. Okay. Got it. Illyria, which is a, it's a suburb of Cleveland. It's not really a suburb of Cleveland, but it's on the outskirts. It's about 30 miles West. Okay. Cleveland. Okay. Got it. I so grew up in the, the farmland, sort of the Firelands area here in Berlin Heights, Milan. Okay. Okay. I got them more towards the Sandusky farmlands uh, area. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned Kiss, Calling Dr. Love. What, what, uh, what records and what, what, what bands were inspiring you as you were growing up? Who were you listening to? And, and, uh, in northeastern Ohio, those in those years, um, it was basically the radio for the longest time, and my sister's records. Uh, and the radio at that time was the Big Eight, um, CKLW from Detroit, Windsor. <laughs> That's what we could get on the AM. Uh-huh. Um, and it came in really clear where we were at. And I don't know, my I wore out my sister's records of uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Monkeys, and. Um, See, Meet the Beatles and Hard Day's Night albums, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Can't go okay. wrong there. No. Uh, oh, great. There were some other ones. I mean, Glenn Campbell, Wichita Lineman albums in the family. Fantastic. Beautiful. Uh, they didn't have many records, but they had some. And uh, I started asking my folks to buy records. I saw some Chuck Berry compilation in the store, and they got that for me when I was eight or something. I remember I was remember listening to uh Glenn Campbell, Wichita Lineman <clears throat> back to back with Court of the Crimson King. <laughs> just, oh wow. Mm-hmm. It was it was just in the air Probably about the same probably about the same year, wasn't it? Sixty nine. Yeah, yeah. I keep but forgetting I, uh how, how far back that King Crimson album goes. I always think, Oh, there's seventy one, seventy two. That was like sixty nine. Yeah, yeah, pre ELP's first record was seventy, so it was before that. Wow. Mm. That's great. Have you Still have classic. you seen kept up with um the Robert Fripp and Toya videos that they've been doing? No. Um they have a great 
set of um, videos. He'll sit there and play something and she'll dance or sing something. And it'll be short little. Wow. No, I things check they'll that do. Out. They're comedic. Yeah. Is that, oh, cool. Where is it at? Is it on his website or Facebook page? Or I just stumbled onto him on YouTube. Oh, okay. Cool. Speaking of music and, and dance, I just happened to stumble over a, a um, David Grohl and uh, what's her name? Sophia, the, the dancer actress. And they, 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 I mean, they're really quite engaging. They have a nice recorded piece of them just talking to the world. But there's a new video called um, Shame, Shame. It's a Foo Fighters song. And she's pretty good. She, she's, she does an amazing interpretation of the song. I've got to see that. I haven't seen any of that. Now, Doug, obviously, you know, shifting gears into indie guided by voices now. Um, you know, when you talk about indie rock bands, you know, there is no bigger indie rock band than guided by voices. Um, and obviously the live component is such a key part of it. Um, I've been a fan of, of GBV for a long time. When I really got into the band was when you were in the band for that first run after Mag Earwig and um, mm -hmm. Do the Collapse and all those great records that are just, you know, I still listen to to this day um, often. Um, but, you know, kind of take us through that process of when you joined the band and how that all came together for you to be a member of the band. Well, uh, I was in Death of Samantha in the 80s. We were a Cleveland band and we were signed to Homestead Records, which had Sonic Youth. Uh, they were a New York-based indie label. They had a lot of things um, on the label, but they had us, and um, we toured around a little bit. Um, we morphed into the band called Cobra Verde around 91, 92. And Cobra Verde did some recording up here. I mean, up here in, in Cleveland, I, I should say, still in Cleveland. Um, and Robert Pollard was a fan of he was a big Death of Samantha fan. He had those records. Uh, by the time they, those guys were ready to come play up in Cleveland, um, we were put on as uh, opening for Guided by Voices. So we did some shows with them as Cobra Verde. Uh, my other band, Jam, that I had as well, um, opened a GBV show, 94, 95-ish. And so we were friends. Um both bands were friends and uh, sometime in 96 Bob uh, dissolved that lineup that he had um, didn't know what to do and uh, called us and Cobra Verde to be the band. Okay. Okay. Now, was that after they were on the Lollapalooza tour? GBV? Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah, that's so the first time. In late 96. Yeah. Uh -huh. Cause I saw them on that lineup, which was like, smashing pumpkins and beastie boys i think and they were on the, the side stage and i didn't know who the hell they were and i didn't i still didn't know who they were for for several years and then my first meeting with bob was he was um this is uh kind of when i got started in, in the business i guess if you will when i was in college i was the music director at this alternative rock station in franklin college and uh, 89.5 WFCI. But anyway, um, I, I had the opportunity to go to the Egyptian room in downtown Indian and meet, uh, Dave, or meet uh, Foo Fighters. And I went backstage to get a liner um, from the drummer um, for, my, for my station. And me and this other guy went up and we were, I'll never forget it because we were leaving for spring break that night. And so we were focused on getting to, getting to Florida, but we wanted to see the Foo Fighters. And we go back there and we're, uh, William Goldsmith was the guy's name. Great yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And so we're doing this liner and Dave Grohl comes around the corner and says, Who, you guys don't want to talk to this guy. He's just the drummer, you know, kind of saying in a funny way, since he's a drummer, he's like, come mm -hmm. on back, you know, after the show or whatever. And so we did. And we're in this dressing room, um, talk, me and my, my friend Jeff talking to Dave Grohl and Pat Smear was in there and Bob Pollard was in there because the band called The Amps uh, opened yeah. up, mm -hmm. which I think... Nate, was Nate Farley in the amps? Maybe he was. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was in the, anyway, but I didn't know who Bob was at that time. He was in the room and we got introduced. And when he said guided by voices, I remembered the name because I played them on the radio station. Uh, Shocker and Gloomtown was, we played it on the radio yeah. station at that time. And so I'm like, Oh, okay. I know who that band is, but I didn't know who he was. But anyway, um, all to say, you know, for anybody listening that, hasn't listened to guided by voices if you're a fan of the who cheap trick the beatles 
if you're looking for a band that's had some of the biggest acts that rock bands in the last 20 years open for them, um, whether it be the Strokes or Kings of Leon, you know, Foo Fighters, huge fans. I was at a show in Cincinnati where they brought Bob on stage to sing Bob O'Reilly in the, uh, in the, uh, the end of the show, the encore, because Bob had opened. I mean, you know, if you're a rock fan, you've got to listen to these guys. And these albums that Doug was on were so influ- influential to me as a rock fan during these years. You know, I've got some of them here, Isolation Drills. Um, there's uh, Earthquake Glue, Mag Earwig, uh, Universal Truths and Cycles. Now, this album, Do the Collapse, was, you know, kind of, you know, to me, was probably one of the most commercial things you guys did. But I'd like to talk about that one for a second because it was uh, produced by Rick Ocasek from The Cars. Take us, if you will, kind of take us back to the studio with how that all came together and working with Rick. Uh, we did it at Electric Lady. We went there for pre-production first. Maybe. I can't remember if we went for pre-production when we were there to do a show in the summer. Maybe that was the case. He he had us go to SIR Studios and he he observed us playing those songs and kind of made some changes, made a couple arrangement changes and made a drumbeat change and this and that. Uh, We played a show at Tramps, a club that no longer exists. Um where he watched the show just to kind of get a taste of us live. Uh, so then in that, that fall of 98, we came to New York and did the, uh, did the tracks um, electric lady. So he, he was, he was kind of a, he was hands on and hands off. I, I would say he let his engineer get a lot of the sounds. Okay. Uh, Who was his engineer back and chain smoke? Huh? Who was the engineer? Uh, Brian Sperber. Okay. All right. Um, in the past, his engineer was Chris Shaw, who did things like the Weezer record with him right. in, in the Not a Surf thing before we came along, uh, to work with Rick. But, um, by that time he had Brian Sperber. So it was a little different sound than those records. It, um, I would later work with Chris with Not a Surf. Right. Um, now, how did that, how did your involvement in that band come about? Was that a result of Chris or was it just, an, you know, another story or how did that come about? Uh, working on a surf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had moved to New York and uh, Matthew came and saw one of my solo. I had a residency at pianos here, uh, which was a club on the Lower East Side. Right. Um, he came to one of the shows and said, Hey, you want to come jam along with us sometime? And, or they were doing, they were doing a covers album. So he just wanted me to come and play on a couple songs. It kind of went on from there, but. Uh, but the Rick thing, uh, we were looking at producers before he was chosen. And um, Bob and he started exchanging cassettes. And he sent Bob a lot of his acoustic demos that, for the first Cars album and things like that. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Wow. And one thing that's interesting is to hear is, you know, I grew up loving the Cars. I was 13, whatever that was, that they hit Ohio. It was, yeah, sure. Whoa. I mean, I didn't see him live, but I, the radio was just all over it, WMMS. Um, and it, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread to me. Um, oh, yeah. Still amazing. Those albums are killer. Yeah, yeah those absolutely. are killer. Yeah. Um, so, so on some of these demos, um, it sounds like Dylan. Turns out that's, that's a, a driving force in a lot of his writing. Really? Really? Wouldn't like, guess there's that. Just, just what I needed. There's a, a demo for that on that. Uh, wow. Ugh, you just what I needed. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's, he's, he's doing the palm muted, doom, 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 you know, on the guitar and singing, I don't mind you coming here. It wasn't, it wasn't a melody yet. Later on, Bob and I, we did, we did some of the sessions we did at his house to save money. He had a studio in his house. Some finishing touches, some vocals and overdub and stuff. The brownstone in Gramercy Park. He has a studio in his basement. So one time during a break, we were sitting there and he gets his 12 string out and sits by us, starts finger picking since you're gone. Starts singing it. I was like, that's Dylan too. You know? Hmm. Um, that's the cool. way he was finger picking the 12 string acoustic. Like, oh, I get it now. It started off as a folk song. Makes sense. Wow. You know? Uh, but that was, that was, that was fun. We did uh, a lot of work at Electric Lady, and like as I said, some at his house, and um, 
he he had a lot to do with the sound of the record and and he put he played some synths on it um not at our request (laughs) but that's you know we kind of wanted to see how he's going to shape shape the sound and he did so right well it's a great record i mean i think it's in some ways um you know, as a fan, maybe unfairly because of his involvement, it seems to be the one that a lot of people maybe talk about in some regard, but it's, to me, it's not the best guided by voices record either. It's tough to pick just right. one because a, there's so many, but you know, when I look down at the ones that, you know how it is after the years pass, the ones that uh, kind of pop back up, Mag Earwig to me is still one that, you know, it's, it's always there. You know what I mean? That one's, yeah. I know, you know, to me, uh, you know, isolation drills is great for the summer. You just roll down the windows, crank up, crank it up the whole way. You're driving, you know yeah. what I mean? Down the road. But yeah. Mag Earwig to me is, I don't know, personally speaking, probably my favorite record by them and, and probably my favorite record by them that you're on. Um, and it has, uh, which I would do want to talk about is uh, I am a tree on it. Can you tell us just a little bit or at least me, <laughs> tell me the story about that song and how that song came together? Uh, I wrote it when I was uh, starting this band called Gem in Cleveland. Um, I guess I, I didn't really write for the band. I just wrote for myself or whatever project right. I, would, I would do. But um had a capo on the seventh fret, and I think I was playing, trying to play Go Your Own Way. Okay. For no reason. Just kind of like, oh, this is how they play. Okay. Uh, Scarborough Fair is also on seventh fret. Could have been that. I don't know. Um, and then you just keep noodling and then eventually like, wow, here's a riff. Okay. And just kind of started making up the song from there. And I did a demo of it with a drum machine and a four track. Uh, and it was a gem song. So we recorded it as a full band, like 94 or something. Right. And never put it out. We never put it out. And those times when Cobra Verde and gem were opening for guided by voices, when they'd come to Cleveland, I'd given Bob a tape of some of that stuff, including that unreleased song. And so when, when we joined the band as Cobra Verde to be guided by voices, Bob said, eh, we're doing Meg Earwig. Um, hey, remember that song I'm a tree that you guys did since you guys never put it out. I think I'd want to do that song on the record. I said, that'd be great. Yeah. To hear you think it would be amazing. So I'm so glad you did. It's such a great song. About. Yeah. It's just, to me, it really encapsulates the band in a lot of different ways. It's so cool. Um, but anyway, um, so we're going to shift gears into uh, kind of the visual aspect and Hugh's going to jump in and, and, uh, and take the reins for a bit. All right. I'm going to try, and I'm glad to hear that you, you have followed artwork <clears throat> at the top of the conversation. You kindly made a comment about following the art. Um, obviously one of the questions I always ask musicians um, is, just how important they feel shelf appeal and album graphics are, you know, some bands are just all about the playing and they just let the label take care of the artwork. And sometimes it works to their advantage because, because it's really just about putting the band on the cover, you know, fuck art, let's dance, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I look at your covers, you're all over the map. I mean, yours and also um, guided by voices, you've got mirrored attack, which feels like, feels like a Fillmore poster. It's got a very kind of, you know, black light. Oh yeah. Black Mirrored light. Aspect, yeah. yeah. And then, um, vampire, the yellow on it, very kind of restrained. You go all over the place, which, which appeals to me because my oldest and dearest client is the band rush from Toronto. And, yes. and they, they allowed it. I mean, I, I love Neil Peart's, um, early kind of credo, you know, deviate from the norm. That was one of his lyrics. And mm-hmm. they did, they did that musically and they certainly allowed me that, latitude to indulge so i've noticed your band i mean you've got the vampires covers yellow you've got this russian propaganda tour poster which looks like you know like call call to arms for for the russian military um mag earwig is a fantastic foreshortening with that the cards in the foreground do the collapse i mean that's how i would have done that cover with the crushed cube it's pretty cool i would say Uh, do the collapse and isolation drills were label label driven uh covered that was their in-house guy um almost every other guided by voices or robert Pollard related project uh are bob's ideas okay most of them are his collages his execution too yeah um 
most most of the time is execution unless it's like a photograph with some graphics over it right um which is which might be his idea but it's not a collage uh, most of them are the collages though and he sells those as independent art artworks as well i see he's done he's done tons of great collages my favorite might be the mag earwig yeah it's pretty cool uh, how about your own i mean when, when we look at when i look at the last album it's quite a uh, again quite restrained and modern your your parade on the the two words parade on would not have you know for a million years have have uh, caused me to respond the way you did. I don't know if you did that cover, but that was one of those things where I was making up the song parade on. Uh, I didn't know it'd be the title track. But I thought of, I couldn't get those syllables and vowel sounds out of my head. Uh, and I didn't want to say don't rain on, don't rain on what that doesn't make any sense. So I came up with that. And um, no, it's a great title. I think titles, to me, titles are the the genesis of any good album cover. A lot of times, placeholders end up being the thing that it's called. But yeah, uh, and so since it became the title, I'm like, oh, what can I do? I'll, I bought these objects. They're actually bookends. Yeah. Um, I bought a light box and uh, borrowed my wife's camera and took the photo myself. Oh, great! Um, and the label that put it out, Rick at Nine Mile. Um, he said he could help with, with the, the graphic, the lettering. And so I kind of, we, you know, we bandied about some fonts and um, I said, that, that one's cool. I don't know if people really love that cover a lot. I'm proud of it just because it's just necessity. And, you know, I'm, I'm not much of an artist, but I, you know, you got to get something done. So you got to have a cover. I'm a big fan of brave minimalism. I, I like seeing, you know, I think I think Coldplay did a couple of really quirky covers where, where you know you don't really quite know what it is, but it, it works. And then there's also the old adage: if an album's good, the cover automatically becomes good. You know, um, you mm-hmm. know, there, there's arguably some covers in history, you know, um, that that have have proven that to be true. I mean, White Album Man. So well, of course, but but yeah. not, be, be careful. That is. To me, that's brilliance. It <laughs> that, is. No, I know. It this, is incredible. Yeah. I think Revolver is, you know, um, Klaus Vorman's sketch on Revolver. It's charming. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Would I have ever kind of, as an isolated piece of art, called that great art? Maybe not. But is that a fucking great album and therefore a great cover? That's there you the, go. The tail wagged that dog, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always thought uh, Freeman's picture of them when they were trying to ape Astrid Kircher's black and white dark thing uh, for with the Beatles, meet the Beatles. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's a great cover. Yeah, amazing. I had dinner with Astrid. I'm I'm proud to say. Oh wow! And, uh, my good friend Demo Safari grew up in Hamburg, and we just finished doing a, an album project for Charlotte Church, the, den- the then the then twelve year old opera singer in London, and. We took a side trip to his hometown and we, we met up with Astrid. It was, it was a wonderful evening. Um, amazing. I have four of her pieces just because of that meeting. Oh, great. That's yeah. awesome. We ended up having dinner with, uh, uh, well, G- Gibson Kemp is a guy that has a pub in Hamburg. He was a drummer that um, was married to Astrid for a bit in the mid-60s. Ah. He was in the big three. He was in these, these Liverpool bands that ended up going there after the Beatles. Um, and touring, he toured behind Chuck Berry and little Richard. And this is in, we're talking 64 ish, 65 ish and stuff. He ended up staying in Hamburg and starting a, a pub, Gibson Kemp's British pub. Mm-hmm. We went there one night when we first got there right. in 2011 awesome. to do another show, ended up talking to him. He sat down and talked to us and told us stories about a little Richard and crazy things. Chuck Berry had just gotten out of jail <laughs> and he wasn't, he was in a bad mood all the time. Going <laughs> with him. Um, That's awesome. Astrid was going to maybe come by, but she didn't. I mean, I don't blame her. Why would you want to come and see me, a bunch of American guys playing the Beatles stuff? She's an inundated with that stuff at the time, I'm sure. But yeah, um, we met Horst Fasher, the guy that uh, was the bouncer for the. We played the Indra where they first played. Great. And Horst Fasher was the bouncer in those days for them when they first got back. Uh, got to Hamburg and he handed them the drugs and the prellies and all stuff. Crazy characters you meet in Hamburg that had associations with those guys. 
I got to walk around on, in the Star Club when I was in Hamburg. Oh, yeah. And, and supposedly that, that tiny little stage is, you know, I was asking, yeah, that's, that's where they played. So I got, I got up there and walked around. The original going, Star Club burned down, I think. I, you, you probably saw the rebuilt one. Yeah. Mm, maybe. It looked, man, it looked like it had been there forever. I mean, it was, this was 25 years ago. It was 96. Oh, okay. So I, I'm not sure, but yeah, I was told that was the same stage and that was enough for me to just walk around on it for a few minutes. Oh, yeah. Bambi has a lot of live uh, videos on YouTube. Um, different people have taken, you can probably check them out. Yeah. Out. We did one with Mark Lewis and the writer joined us at a Beatles fest and came up and uh, sang up sang a couple songs. <laughs> nice. Did he do the, uh, like the recording sessions book? Yeah. And he's doing the big yeah. three part, uh, tune in the, the huge 900 page. Oh, wow. Yeah. Book. Mm -hmm. And then he's doing volume two, uh, now, and no one knows when that's going to be done, but that's kind of like the bird's Bibles that I've got. Yeah. Requiem for the masses. That's they're both a thousand pages. <laughs> you got to be really a, a bird's nerd, a bird nerd to uh, have those. And I proudly do. Hugh's book of uh, the art of rush. How many pages is that book? Hugh? that's it's an amazing book. Well, it's two seventy something, which kind of crept up on me really fast. And we're actually doing a second edition, um, uh, which is going to feature some more of the, it's, you know, I consider rush, you know, even though they retired and everybody said, well, now what, um, we're doing 40th anniversary box sets, which is really not a cash grab. It's, it's definitely taking footage from the Hammersmith Odeon and it's just, you know, cleaning up old video and re remixing, bringing Terry Brown back into to properly remix the live performances. And mm. so it's, it's really valuable stuff for, for a true rush fan but it also allows me to go back in and revisit lyrics that I probably didn't pay very close attention to, to be quite honest, because in the early days, I wasn't really a huge Rush fan, even though I was on the same label as, as, as the band. Um, but it allowed me to go back in and harvest the imagery and have fun with, with new artwork, because we can now do these 12-inch square booklets to go inside with, with the... Uh, with the vinyl, um, but we're, we're, we're taking some of the imagery from those 40th anniversary box sets and we're going to do an addendum to the original, to the original uh, Art of Rush and re-release that. We're also going to do a, a, a memorial page for Neil in the new book. So, yeah. That's, oh, that's awesome. How did it come about that the, the, the man from Hemispheres became sort of the logo and then this, the stage image with the Complete accident. Did that, pre did that predate the cover or did the cover came first? <laughs> the cover came first. I mean, the, okay. the, they mean the 2112 cover. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that came first, but then once Neil and I started talking about, you know, the, the arc of the, the epic side one story. And he said, well, we're, de we're dealing with kind of the battle of, of self-expression and freedom of expression and the oppressive red star of the Federation, which was contrary to any, any of those freedoms. You know, I heard red star of the Federation and, and someone, some one individual um, defying that. So it really became quite a literal interpretation. The fact that he was naked was more a statement of, um, of I guess, purity, you know, pure mm -hmm. art without the trappings of clothing and all of that. Um, yeah. Not quite realizing whether or not that would play well to the to the very male centric rock uh, audience that Rush had at the time and continued to have, um, but that it became their their brand was a complete accident. I mean, I I couldn't have known that it was going to be adopted as as repetitively and as thoroughly as it was. Um, it, it was an accident. Sometimes that start that all starts with uh, in a rehearsal. What are we going to put on the drum head and tour? <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah sure. uh that one thing from the album cover okay and that that's what i'm saying though that could have worked for one release and one tour but it wouldn't go away it's one of those things that just wouldn't go away so <laughs> um that's that's an okay that's an okay happenstance yeah that's very cool and also for, for the days when uh 
when uh, that con- the concept you guys were talking about on, on side one was just a fantasy. Yeah. That's a good segue into to shifting gears a little bit again. So can you tell us, Doug, what was your first attended concert as a fan? The first actual concert, big, big concert was Peter Gabriel. Oh, wow. Um, 83. Cool. It was a security tour with Shock the Monkey. Awesome. Right. Um, it was more that I went more on an invitation than I want to go to this because a few friends from high school were going and someone had a ride and like, Hey, do you want to go in on a ticket for this? Yeah, sure. And I was, a, I was a fan, but I didn't have a burning desire. I mean, it wasn't, you know, something I had my sights set on, but it was great. It was, you know, Tony, they came through the crowd, Tony Levin playing. They all, they were all playing uh, drums like marching band drums as they made their way to the stage. And from what I remember of that, it was, it was very cool and very, very great concert. But um, then I started going to things like U2, play Cleveland Music Hall on the war tour. Wow. All right. Things like that. You know, I, I was already playing in clubs um, in my, in the bands I was in. Punk band. Say how, how old were you when you started playing in the clubs? I'm about 16. Okay. Oh, that's young. The other guys, the other guys in the band were 25 and stuff. So they were of age. Wow. Sure. And somehow I passed for older. So, it's funny. Okay. I, I don't know the theme on, on this podcast sometimes is I think we should work in as a new question is how young were you when you started playing in the clubs? Cause we were talking to Jerry Shirley from humble pie recently. Mm-hmm. And I think he was what, 13 or something like that when he started. Something he like was that. 14 when, uh, 14. when Marriott and Kenny Jones first saw him and gave That's him a right. thumbs up from the side of the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, 16 is like, pretty young, man. Yeah. That's pretty yeah, no question. It, it's crazy to think that 16 is not the youngest that we've talked to, but yeah. I guess Crazy. for a Midwesterner, I guess that's pretty oh, yeah. Um Definitely. Now, Doug, you know, what, when you look at the, you know, Guided by Voices, is a, it's always, every time I've seen uh, that band in concert, it's kind of like this, the relentless, you know, live experience where it's just a pounding. You know, it's almost like an athletic event, you know, where you go into a GBV show and you don't go in with a passive type of... <laughs> you know, uh, mentality. I think it's almost like you're getting ready to head to the stadium to watch a NFL game or a college football game because it's just, it's like a pounding. And it's, I love that about it. And it's like a hundred songs. No kidding. Like literally it seems like it's at least, you know, 70 to a hundred songs or well, two minutes. We did a hundred songs. Um, New Year's. Yeah. In, in LA last year. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's hundred dollars is what it was. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. But I mean, I, most, know, most, of our, most of our sets are about 50, 60 songs. Right. Like a regular right. set would be 50 or 60 songs. Oh my so God. So how do you, how do you prepare yourself for, for that? I mean, that's, you know, it, it's, it's a big, it's a big ask to go out and, and play for a couple hours. It's another one to just be relentless about it. And that's what's, that's what makes GBV shows so great. But you know, how do you as a band member keep that up? You know, every time you're going out. Yeah, I thought you were going to say musically, how do you remember the songs? How do you keep up with the song? But you're talking about physical stamina. Yeah, yeah. Um, both. Well, yeah. both, yeah, sure. I don't know. We just we just make sure we do a good sound check, um, which, are, which the sound check doesn't last that long for us. But uh, I, I, we, which, I don't know. Um, is it kind of like an, an adrenaline thing? You know, it's kind of like once you're up there, then it kind of takes over. It's an adrenaline over. thing. We make sure we write our own, we, we write our own set list backstage in, in Marker. Uh-huh. Uh, because well, that'd be enough to give you a cramp right there. Yeah, that's true. They change from They change it from show to show because Bob puts a different sequence. I mean, it's the same batch we're drawing from. He just put the different sequence and we don't really know until the day of the show, which is fine because why... You know, a lot of bands tour at the very same typed out set list every show. Um, and why well, play the same sequence of songs? You, right. When people know your set, you don't want, and some of the travelers that go from show to show, you don't want to give them the same thing every, every time. So in, in your history of doing all these shows, and you, you've done a ton of them all over the world, Doug, what are the shows that somebody asks you, hey, what are the, the shows that stick out in your career that really are the big ones in your mind? Like, I can't believe this happened, or venues, or whatever. Can you share a couple of, couple of those, uh, those memories with us? 
There's a few things. I mean, there's been so many that I'm sure I'm leaving out of a whole slew, but, uh, um, with GBV, we played Primavera Festival last year. Uh, that was really, that was cool. We played Central Park Summer Stage one time back in the late nineties. Uh, we we're on TV shows. Um, one special one was with not a surf. We played uh, Le Bataclan in Paris. We were one of the first bands to play after the terror attacks, a- after they reopened. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a pretty moving experience for everyone there. Did you watch that Netflix um, documentary that they did on that by chance? It was yeah. like, a, that was, that was really, I, I found myself watching that thinking, Oh, I've watched this in, you know, a night or two. And it's really hard to watch. Like you almost had to watch an episode and then kind of process it for several days. At least I think being in this business, knowing so many people and friends in this business and, and what you can, it's so relatable and it's hard to watch. Was it hard to go into that venue that night and that, you know, and kind of go through that? How did that, how did that, I mean, I guess, how did that feel? It wasn't hard to, uh, we got there. I mean, we were on a tour bus and so you get there at noon or something and it was warm from the moment you walked in, they had a, they had a food spread and everyone's just kind of getting ready for the show and doing their thing. And everyone's in a jovial mood as far as their staff and everyone's very friendly and very smiley and, and, uh, um, it was only emotional really, uh, as Matthew talked between songs one time about, about the occasion and, uh, and then we played a, a slow song and it just felt, everyone felt, uh, emotional at that time. Sure. Then there's yeah. the whole consideration too, that this can't take you down. Don't let it get you down. I mean, of course. You know, when I heard about Sting, when he did his, uh, he did an incredible show from his, his, uh, his home in Italy. And it was, it was debated whether he was going to continue with the show right after 9-11. And naturally his response was, hell yeah, we are. We're going to, you know, music doesn't stop. You know, this is not going to get us, you know. Right. I imagine. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there was a celebratory aspect to you. Oh, yeah. In that room, too. Yeah, it was all yeah. about music being, you know, uplifting people and everything. Yeah. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time oh, yeah. and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It was an honor to talk to all you guys. Likewise. Great talking to you, Doug. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Take care, Doug. Thanks for the questions. Very cool. Keep rocking, man. See you later. Thanks, guys. Great talking. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to end this episode with a Doug solo tune. It's called Stealth Control. Thanks again, Doug Gillard, for joining us on the Music Buzz podcast. Until next time, have a good one. Control, 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 